Welcome to Chris Thomas King's The Blues, The Authentic Narrative Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Thomas King. Welcome to episode number two. That is inspired by my new book, The Blues, The Authentic Narrative of My Music and Culture, which is out June 8, 2021, in bookstores, at Amazon, and wherever you get your books. This is a hardcover book on nearly 400 pages, and it's non-fiction narrative that I know you're going to love. Welcome to episode number two, where we'll discuss the question, what are your thoughts on how Led Zeppelin borrowed from the blues? This question comes from Song Facts. They sent me 10 questions um, there uh, to speak about my new book, The Blues, The Authentic Narrative of My Music and Culture which is out soon. And in discussing, they read the book and they're doing a review and they asked me to, they say, they sent me 10 questions uh, and I was going to give them a written response. So I thought that I would share those questions with you all because these questions were not the typical questions that I normally get uh, in interviews. So here we go. Uh, one of the questions was, what are your thoughts on how Led Zeppelin borrowed from the blues. So let's get into it. My written response uh, to them, I'll read it, and sorry for the dryness of my reading. I wrote that Zeppelin represents capitalism taking over mining of gold records. We were, you know, we, the, we blues musicians were barred from participating because we weren't allowed to take partake in that capitalist project. We were reduced to miners. We couldn't re, uh, rent castles and hire million dollar gear and expert sound engineers. It took real capital and lots of it to do these things. Zeppelin represented that new uh, corporate capitalist rock that um, that swept the nation starting in the, in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, Zeppelin wouldn't be Zeppelin if they had recorded in the archaic conditions and with inferior equipment that people like Slim Harpo, um, Buddy Guy, uh, Magic Sam, my early recordings. Uh, I recorded my first album, I think uh, 600 maybe $800 the whole album cost. And because I only had that much of a budget from the record company, I played all the instruments myself, you know, basically. Not basically, I mean, I did, all except one song. And um, so, but a Led Zeppelin album, their recordings, I mean, where we were, we, not we, I mean, when I say we, I wasn't born in the 1940s or the 1920s. So when I say we, I'm just talking collectively as, uh, you know, black blues musicians. So, um, but we recorded on, you know, uh, in the 70s, late 60s, we were still recording on very primitive, you know, 1950s type of recordings where everybody got in a room and recorded onto one track, two tracks, four tracks, you might bounce down a few tracks and try to open up something else. But usually the, the equipment you were working on was was secondhand gear, uh, 
it broke down a lot. Um, it just wasn't up to the standards of what was happening in the recording industry, where you could, where Zeppelin could rent a castle for months at a time, because the cap, because the 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 the, the, the mansion sounded great, had had great acoustics. And then you can bring a sound truck out like the Rolling Stones might do or whatever and, and record on location someplace and spend, you know, uh, months doing this. Um, it just wasn't possible. And that where, that's where the blues, um, the English blues bands like a Zeppelin began to separate from the American black blues musicians. Their, the sound of their records just sounded like a million bucks because that's what it was. That's what it took. And um, the sound of the uh, black blues musicians uh, sounded more primitive. And a lot of times the uh, recorders or the producers even used that primitiveness and that low, lo-fi um, recording technique, they even kind of desired that because the audience for the white audience, record buying audience that was interested in folk blues and in and, and the blues, southern blues at this time, uh, they wanted lo-fi. They wanted something that sounded more primitive. And so in other words, if you did vocal harmonies or brought in some strings or something like that to sweeten the sound or whatever, you know, this was this you were you were kind of you were going to lose that core blues audience that wanted the music to remain um, what they perceived to be as as primitive recording. But those same rules and that same criteria and critique didn't apply to the Rolling Stones, to the Led Zeppelins of the world, and those kinds of bands. I mean, they could um, spend more on a mink coat than what you might spend on your whole, um, you know, record recording. So um, that's what, so, so sonically, that's really where the music began to separate. And, um, but more than that, uh, now I didn't, you know, I, I quoted some of the things that I wrote, but most of this I'm just kind of winging it, you know, here. I, I, I don't like to do podcasts reading or with notes in front of me. I just like to, to riff, you know, and it's more fun for me that way to share information with you just, you know, as, as it comes to me. Uh, I have a little outline, but I just let, let it, let it do what it do. But um, I, real, I will read one other sentence to you just so you get the complete uh, idea of what I shared. Uh, again, the question was, just to reset, the question was, <clears throat> what are your thoughts on how Led Zeppelin borrowed from the blues. Um, and then I wrote, uh, in addition to what I uh, read earlier, I wrote, Zeppelin wouldn't be Zeppelin if they recorded in the archaic conditions and with inferior equipment. Don't get me wrong. They would have sounded pretty good, but not much better than Magic Sam or Buddy Guy. Zeppelin and all those capitalist blues bands sounded like a million dollars on FM radio which practiced apartheid. That sound was drilled into the public with payola and cocaine until the public submitted. So 
that's the last sentence that I wrote um, back to song facts. Yeah, so that don't actually that don't answer the question directly about what did I think about them borrowing from the blues. Well, it, it's not uh, everybody borrows from everybody, uh, or or I guess borrow is not even the right word. I guess uh, what he's insinuating or implying is that they stole, you know, um, ideas, you know, from black artists, blues artists, and made millions. A dollars by doing so without crediting the black artists they got the riffs and the sounds and ideas from, and that's a problem. I, that that do that does bother me, but musically speaking, I enjoy the albums. I have a few of the albums, you know, here on on vinyl. Uh, uh, I, I, I really like the sound that they had. Now, when they came out at the time that they were doing this music uh, in real time, say back in, in the late 60s, critics hated Zeppelin. And they hated, Zeppelin, they hated Zeppelin because of what they represented. I don't know if they hated them because they didn't like the sound of the, the, the way the drummer played or the guitars or the basses. They were all good musicians. You know, Plant was a, Robert Plant was a good front person. You know, um, but I think... The critics hated what they represented because they were unapologetically not about. Uh, they were not about some kind of uh, social movement of, you know, uh, they were they were not a kumbaya type of type of band. They were not in it. Uh, they were not pretending to, you know, care about race relations or having people come together with their music. Or they were just bombastic. Their sound was bombastic. They were bombastic. They were chauvinistic. They were, um, you know, all these things that um, the folkies, or the early folk rock people, or the people that was dealing with folk and blues, everything that they despised. Zeppelin represented everything that the folkies despised. Now, the ironic thing about that is that the folkies uh, sold out too. I mean, they were looking to... they. The ones that did, you know, the ones that didn't really sell out, you know, and pick up electric guitars like Bob Dylan did and and things like that. Some of them didn't do it because they just weren't able to do it. It's not because they didn't try to do it or didn't have a desire to. Very few of them, um, they were idealists in the early 60s. And, you know, you had, um, you know, bands out of Chicago, you know, um, Michael Bloomfield. And um, and other bands, you know, that were doing um, the blues, but they were purist kind of, you know, uh, purist almost to a fault, really. Uh, they would even uh, try to reteach uh, the blues musicians how to play their music. That's how arrogant they were, uh, how purist they were. In other words, if Mississippi John Hurt wasn't planning quite right at the folk festival. Well, you know, they uh, tried to reteach him his own tunes. But I mean, what if the man just, you know, had a new idea, had a new way of of expressing that 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 tune? You know, uh, but they didn't really see these mus- these guys as artists. You know, they saw them as kind of artifacts. And um, in the in the late fifties, early sixties, well, they didn't really, 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 
rediscover these guys until the late until the early 60s but the folk festival was going on like you know in 59 you know you can see there's probably videos out there muddy waters dressed sharp as a tack you know hanging out with less uh, langston hughes and the great poet uh and uh and doing his thing i mean and he looked as the, the band was as sharp as any jazz band that ever walked on the bandstand uh you know, they, their hair was fried and dyed and laid to the side and all these kind of things. And they were, you know, James Cotton. I mean, they were they were they were sharp as a tack. And then you see Muddy Waters come back to the folk festival about five years later. And he's got overalls on and and he looked like a, a, a farmer, you know, somebody who just just rode in on a hay on a hayseed, you know, truck or something. And. Because this was playing into, you know, what what that audience uh, desired or expected, or you know what they projected upon these musicians, and they and and they played into it, including Buddy Guy. I mean, Buddy Guy, you see Buddy Guy on the folk festival tours, and you know he was doing he was like dancing like James Brown, and you know real funky, and you know little James Brown, little Wilson Pickett or something. And then even he, you know, acquiesced to, you know, those demands of that market that was growing. You know, these and the market that was growing in the early 60s on the blues were um, people who um, they weren't, you know, a lot of them had, you know, were pure folk fans. Folk music was was had had its moment for a couple of years there. Uh, during the early civil rights movement and, and such. But once people found out that they could really make a lot of money and become Elvis, make a lot of money and become, I think the Beatles came over in 64 and, you know, performed on Ed Sullivan and just changed everybody's idea about what what you could do with a guitar. You know, before it was like you go out to the park and you get together with your friends and you write poetry and and recite poetry and you play some songs, you know, together in this communal thing. And after the Beatles came and did their thing, uh, you know, and and, and upset all the little girls, well, you know, every teenage boy, you know, out there wanted to be one of the Beatles. I mean, that was it. That that changed everything. And they didn't know it was possible. And uh, to even... They just didn't know. And then they found out, they began to find out that the Beatles got a lot of their riffs and ideas and songs, you know, from a lot of blues blues musicians like Chuck Berry and, and other people, Little Richard and so on and so forth. And, and, and they came looking, you know, crossing the tracks, so to speak, coming, coming, coming to the, to, to the black clubs, to the jig joints, you know, trying to find their own uh, soothsayer, somebody who could, you know, some some old some elderly black man who could wave some magic dust, you know, or bless bless him or something, you know, or touch his retune his guitar, and then uh, he can be a rock star too, you know. So everybody, this was the idea of, uh, and the whole folk thing and all the ideals and purity and come together and you know, black people and white people should you know, join forces and do something about the war and do something about um, the hypocrisy and and 
you know, of the government and all this stuff, all that went went straight out the window. And Led Zeppelin represented, you know, capitalism at its most, you know, uh, unapologetic capitalist rock and roll. Or cap- they called it rock and roll, but, it, you know, it really was blues. But, um, you know, um, let me just m- make it real clear. You know, rock and roll is just a pseudonym for blues. Rock and roll, in to my definition in my book, you know, the blues, the authentic narrative of my music and culture in my book, I uh, define rock and roll as being blues by white folks for white folks. And even though they're playing the exact same notes that we're playing, even though they're singing the exact same lyrics, basically, exact same melody, beat, everything like that, the people wanted to, they would swear up and down that this is not blues. I mean, wait a minute, my, now my, just like they try to tell you, you see something, don't believe your, your lying eyes. Well, they're telling someone like me, don't believe my ears. Now, wait a minute, they're playing the exact same oldest Rush tune. I can't quit you, baby, but I got to put you down for a little while. They're playing the exact same tunes, exact same breaks, exact same notes. But when they do it, it's rock and roll. When Otis Rush and Willie Dixon do the tune, it's blues. Well, of course, uh, that's, that's, that's some kind of double consciousness that black people have to develop to kind of interpret you know, what people really mean when they say these things. So, um, so Led Zeppelin, I had, I, but in spite of all of that, in spite of all of those things that's so easy to despise about Led Zeppelin, uh, as a guitar player and as somebody who, you know, grew up in the blues and, and wanted to play it loud and wanted to really uh, use it as a, as a way to really express myself, I enjoyed the music. I remember back in the day when I was a little boy, I must have been, I don't know, I don't know how old it was, was it 13 or something? But I was, I was on my way to the Zeppelin concert. You know, my brother worked at the LSU Assembly Center, the basketball arena. <laughs> He's a janitor there. Buddy Guy was a janitor there years before he left Baton Rouge and moved to Chicago. Well, my brother was a janitor there, so man, I got to see everybody that played, the, the that came to LSU campus and performed. I mean, everybody. And uh, and Led Zeppelin was was due to play. And for some reason, he invited me to come down and, and check him out, and I didn't go check him out. And so, you know, when my brother uh, came home and he told me, say, I asked him how was the show, and he said, and I'm with some bad white boys. <laughs> and that meant that they were they were okay, you know. So, um, so that's how I answered the question. Um, what are your thoughts on how Led Zeppelin borrowed from the blues? The thing that really bugs me the most, and it should bug anyone, is that uh, the mining, using blues musicians, uh, blues songwriters, using our, taking our ideas, uh, taking out riffs, 
twisting them around, playing them backwards or whatever you need to do to kind of try to make it sound like it's your own thing. Taking that intellectual property and, 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 and making millions and millions and millions of dollars of millions of dollars of wealth, you know, um, from it and that money not trickling back to the black performers. That's what uh, people like me or anybody who care about the music business and, 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 and making sure that the right people are credited and, and compensated. That's the part that you hate. And it's not personal. It's nothing personal about John Bonham or, you know, these guys. I mean, nobody, there's no p- personal animosity. It's just the way the business is set up, the way the whole capitalist structure of rock and roll was set up. Uh, it set them up as some kind of imperialist blues band. And then it made people like us the miners. In other words, we're out wading in this muddy red clay water, you know, for gold. Little bits and pieces of gold. And then, you know, Jimmy Page, you got to bring it to him or his manager or his, his, his whoever, some record executives, you bring, you bring that little pieces of gold, they pat you on the head, and they take that gold to, the, to London, take it to the market, to the marketplace. They turn that into, you know, millions and billions of dollars. And all you left to do is go back out into that muddy river and mine for some more gold. And so all those gold records and that's hanging on their walls are gold records that were mined from the you know the intellectual property of a whole culture is intertwined with that you know and that is the part that is um that's that's you know it makes you angry makes you upset or makes you you know want to write that wrong i mean that is that's what people didn't like it's not necessarily a music thing. But let me um, let me go back to um, what, what capitalism did to separate uh, rock and roll from blues. And uh, we're going to keep Zeppelin in mind and, and, and groups like that. What um, the, the, in the in the 1940s, when you listen to the music of the 1940s and the early 1950s, everybody, the early Elvis stuff at Sun Records, I mean, he was, they were recording, Harlan Wolf and them was recording, and uh, basically just like Elvis was recording. They were recording the same studio, using the same, you know, crude, you know, equipment, and trying to be as creative as they could be with it. So when you hear... Uh, Junior Parker's version of Train, Train. Train, Train, uh, on down the line, whatever that tune is that, that Elvis covered. Uh, when you hear his version, he, it sounds just as good, if not better, than Elvis's version. Elvis' version, you know, sonically, is not, um, it's not all that impressive, except for, you know, a little slap echo and a little more energy you know, from the bass player slapping his bass. But other than that, uh, 
um, the original song sound, sounds great, still sounds great today. Whereas Elvis's uh, recording, you know, today might sound a little gimmicky, you know, uh, because of all the slap echo, you know, looking for a new sound or something that they were doing, which is okay. Um, but you fast forward to about 10 years or so, 1965, 67, 68, 69, you know, um, the music industry and investors and, and capitalists have woken up to the fact that we got a whole lot of young teenage white girls out here who are buying these records and we can make a, you know, we can make a mountain of money um, by investing in this new music thing. And it was kind of cool because, you know, any almost anybody could get a recording deal or make an album in, in the late 60s because the executives didn't know what the hell was happening. So they put out anything and everything. Everybody got, got, got a chance to record. Um, but, um, but when they started finding the formula that was working, when they started finding what worked or what really sold or what they could really get behind and really... Uh, capitalize on they honed in on that and they put so much money into it and not only that uh, FM radio you know where, where Stairway to Heaven lived and uh, you know like I said they, they weren't a popular Led Zeppelin wasn't a popular band um, for, to critics um, because of what they represented but on their tours, I think they won over audiences uh, with their musicianship. You know, John Bonham was just, you know, he was a ma an amazing drummer. And, um, you know, people just didn't really play like that uh, and have that kind of power, you know, at that back at that time. And the kind of rhythms that he was doing and, and, and things were, you know, you know, he had uh, more of an African, very Africanized, you know, type of rhythms and things that that he was hip to and ahead of a lot of other uh, white drummers who were just they were just figuring out you know the beat I mean back in the day when you when I was a little little boy uh, had a show called Bandstand and they'd play a song and it ask a couple of the dancers you know what they like about this song and they say the beat everybody if the song had a good beat I mean that was kind of the whole thing and Zeppelin had one of the greatest beaters but uh, but the but the recording process, the equipment. If you don't have, if, especially with the electric guitar, the electric guitar is not like the acoustic guitar. You know, you can just put up a decent microphone or or whatever, and you can and, and if you got a good player and he's got a good guitar, you can capture that. But that damn electric guitar, that's a motherfucker. The electric guitar is so picky. The electric guitar is so finicky, and especially if you play a Stratocaster, which is what I play. That's my main guitar, Strat. A Stratocaster guitar, you just can't just put, you, you know, you, you can't just put a mic in front of some any old amp and just start playing, and you, and it's gonna sound good. Now, when I was a kid, back at uh, Tabby's Blues Box, uh, you can go into a pawn shop. And grab any old kind of secondhand guitar or secondhand Fender amplifier, and plug into that thing, and you were gonna pretty, you were gonna sound pretty good. It's not like these Fender amps that are made today. The kind of tubes 
that are made is not is made in you know other countries and made with cheaper products it's not hand wired and all this kind of thing you know um they might have the name fender on it but it ain't the fender amps that you could find in a pawn shop second hand you know back in 19 you know 71 72 when i was like 10 10 9 10 years old you know um people all people talk about a stratocaster uh, from the year 1962, 63, or 59 Strat, and all this kind of stuff here. When you, those, they was, you know, they were, those things were very cheap in the early 70s. Nobody really thought that much about, oh, we got to get a 1959 Strat. It was just a secondhand guitar that somebody had in their garage or had pawned or bought it for a kid because he saw the Beatles and then he lost interest in it and started playing sports and now the the guitars in the pawn shop or or you know whatever but it was easy to get you know um they had the Fender Rhodes piano which is a classic classic uh, tone and sound and instrument um people didn't know these things were going to become you know classic instruments but but anyway this was um a heyday for certain kinds of of gear you know um echo machines that that they were making the echoplex uh, that was real big with their sound, you know, these plate reverbs that uh, that they were very good at, at, at using. And then Jimmy Page, you know, grew up uh, working in studios as a session musician and being around and having access to these uh, science labs, which is what a recording studio really is. Um, and so if you have access to that kind of equipment or access to being in that environment and learning how to place the mics and, and how to get certain sounds and, and understanding what mixing and, 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 you know, what, what EQ to use or what compression and how to, you know, double track your vocals and all these kind of things and then having the time to do it and then having, being able to have the money to hire the experts, expert engineers and sound engineers to do these things. I mean, <laughs> I mean, mercy. I mean, Slim Hoppo. I mean, Slim Hoppo had to show up, drive his station wagon over to Crowley to make King be. Uh, my dad, you know, usually travel with him. They go over to go over to Crowley to make a tune like King be and scratch my back. And man, they had to they had to finish recording tunes like uh, they had to cut a session. They had about an hour or two, and then there were some other musicians waiting to come in to to do their thing. And 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 in Crowley, J.D. Miller stuff, you know, it was it was very very crude, you know. It was in the late '60s, you know, music had just moved so far ahead of what they were doing, in Crowley, um, and and then you know, um, the music of Chicago, sonically. Well, I mean, uh, Bill Putman, if I'm pronouncing his name right, you know, Universal Audio, this company. At Chess Records, he was experimental and he was building uh, echo chambers and building uh, preamps and things that uh, was, you know, that ended up being like the the uh, sought after tone uh, for people like um, eventually for people like Frank Sinatra and that King Cole and thing. But before that, Lil Walter was 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 making use of uh, Bill Putman's talent uh innovating the tone that he was getting on that huge tone that he was getting on this harmonica you know uh 
those ch- a lot of those early chess rec- chess recordings uh this man had his his stamp on those recordings and they sounded fantastic and the only black musician that really got a chance to compete in in that space was Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix left America. Now, when he was in America recording, and, you know, as a backup guy with the on the rhythm and blues circuit, I mean, Jimi sounded good, but he wasn't any, you know, I mean, Magic Sam was just as good. Sounded just as good, if not better. Uh, but Jimi went to England and got um, access to, you know, Olympia uh, Recording Studio, uh, sound the same sonics and the same engineers and the same you know quality that Zeppelin, the Stones, the Beatles, and all these people had access to. Jimi Hendrix got access to all of that, and he sounded like a million bucks, you know. But his sound and his talent was you know he just exploded you know out of England. Um, you know he the studio recording studio could hardly contain his creativity. But it's no it's no coincidence that somebody like Jimi Hendrix would build Electric Ladyland, you know, world class studio where somebody like Stevie Wonder, you know, recorded songs in the key of life and and things like that. I mean, he, you know, sonically, he understood that it's not enough to just plug into some amp and just play the blues like my dad told me one time. I had a lot of had all my pedals set up on some little gig we were playing, and he was like, you know, if you were a real guitar player, you'd be able to play without those pedals. Well, yeah, you can play without those pedals. I mean, yeah, he's right about that. But you ain't gonna, you ain't gonna compete with uh, Eddie Van Halen and Jimmy Page and Jimi Hendrix and people like that just plugging straight into, you know, a Fender, Re- a Fender uh, Super Reverb. It ain't going to happen. It just don't work. The electric guitar just don't work like that. And because the electric guitar was the the uh, instrument, it, you know, um, it overtook the trumpet, which was the main instrument for the soloist for blues, which had been established, you know, by Louis Armstrong and others. Uh, the guitar just became the new um, loudest solo instrument. The trumpet was the loudest instrument in the acoustical era. But in the electric era, the guitar was the loudest instrument. And um, and it just became the dominant instrument for the blues. Now, Miles Davis tried to compete with Led Zeppelin. He tried to compete with Jimi Hendrix. He tried to compete with the guitar for blues um solo instrument uh, uh, the hierarchy you know he didn't want to take a back seat to the guitar and he tried to play the wah-wah pedal with the trumpet which to <laughs> believe it or not the wah-wah pedal was made for the trumpet not the guitar but uh, that 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 tone of the wah-wah pedal it emulates uh, what uh, King Oliver invented playing with a plunger, you know, in the trumpet and wah-wah, you know, getting that getting that tone, that wah-wah tone out of the trumpet. The wah-wah pedal was kind of like an emulation of that. And it was really thought to be made for the for the for a horn player, 
But, you know, sometimes you invent something and people use it in a way you never expected. And Jimi Hendrix took the thing and, and made it, uh, you know, uh, an amazing uh, new sonic, you know, uh, device to use for a guitar. But Miles Davis tried to compete, but the trumpet just wasn't able to compete with the guitar. It just couldn't do it. And um, the guitar became the king maker for blues. And I get to, like I said, that guitar is a finicky instrument. It's a very picky instrument. And you got to have the right speaker. You got to have the right microphones. You have to have the right cabling. You got to have the right pickup. You got to have the right pick, the, your strings. You got to have the right strings. You got to have, you know, the right tubes. And it's just, there's a whole science to getting great tone. And just to let you guys know my tone I had trouble with my tone up until I started working with uh, some Baton Rouge folks who make an amp amplifier called Comet, and that's spelled K-O-M-E-T. It's not a cheap, it's not a cheap amplifier. In my recording studio, I use um, the Comet 19. It's like a it's a 19 watt head, and it has uh, the only knobs it have is volume. A saturation knob and a tone knob and that's it there's no reverb there's no you know the tone knob it can go a little treble a little bass of course but there's no other kind of there's nothing else happening and it's and it's hand wired now this is this is not a cheap uh amplifier but I, I i suggest you look them up because like i said fender isn't fender fender is not what fender used to be marshall is not what marshall used to be you know things have have changed but uh, I didn't really find my tone until uh, and I was always frustrated on the road because you know you tell people bring you a Marshall or bring you you know when I when I tour <clears throat> I don't travel with equipment I don't you know um, I, on my rider you know I ask for a guitar technician to be there to, to work with me and to and for the promoter to provide me you know certain amplification and so on and so forth and um, but I but I started traveling with the comet head and it solved a lot of my my problems because, you know, you never know what you're going to get when you just plug into any amplifier. Uh, and then you have to bring a whole rack of, of pedals be, uh, like a like a doctor. You know, you bring your whole little medicine bag because you don't quite know what you're going to get or what 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 what, 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 what tool you're going to use to solve the the problem is it going to be really piercing is it going to be is this can can it handle the volume or can it does, does it sound nice and sweet without having to crank it you know so there's all these kinds of things and just for the guitar players out there that are curious uh, my preferred uh, speaker is the uh, Celestian Greenback it's a it's a low watt uh, low watt speaker but sometimes people change their pickups and change this, their, you know, they, they, they redo this and re they do all these things. And what you really need to do is start with the speaker. Make sure you listen. Make sure the sound is coming out of the right speaker, because that's what the your ears are going to hear. That's what the microphone is going to capture. My tone. I like the the, the green back. And now the green back, I believe, is what um was very popular back in the late 70s. I'm, uh, I don't know if some of those marshals used those greenbacks, but I think greenbacks were um, 
back in the you know that high uh, the the you know that epoch of um, blues guitar, uh, nickel pure nickel strings and greenback speakers were on a lot of guitars and then a lot of amplifiers. I mean, in a lot of speaker cabinets. Uh, so anyway, um, that's my that's one of the questions that um, uh, that's one of the questions that was asked to me by Song Facts. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Carl Rise- Weiser for that for the for that question. And um, again, uh, my new book is titled "The Blues: The Authentic Narrative of My Music and Culture." And um, it's it's nearly a 400-page book. Uh, I researched the book uh, extensively um, for several years, uh, and I, I always thought that I might. I, when I started the book, I didn't realize it would take as long as it took. But um, no, they, you know, no person had really written what I consider to be an authentic history of the blues, and. Um, I'm, I'm, I would uh, I present my my book as the first authentic history of the blues. I think what we have uh, uh, we have in li- in our libraries from sociologists and folklorists and interlopers and you know other people who would who travel down to Mississippi from from England or wherever they're from. And they look around and hang out a little bit, drink some moonshine, eat some barbecue, and go back and write a book um, about black culture. Uh, and they don't capture it. They don't, you know. So there, there, there are no books that really brings you through the lens and have you see the world through uh, the lens and hear it through the ears of somebody born into the culture, living in the culture, breathing the culture, and um, and and making a living from the culture. Um, the blues was around before the record business. It'll be around hopefully after the record business. It really it didn't. It, it, it's not a really about the record business. But anyway, uh, it's a culture. It's a cultural expression. So um, so they got so a lot of those books they got it wrong. And uh, so I recommend uh, that you read, you know, I recommend that you read, (laughs) read whatever you love to read. But uh, I do recommend that if you're interested in really uh, learning what what this music is all about, learning that, you know, the voodoo of it, you know, some things that are really difficult to explain, but that are just spiritual about it, uh, how it came about, why it came about. And who brought it into the world? Who invented this music? Uh, I cover all of that in my book, The Blues, The Authentic Narrative of My Music and Culture. And I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. This is podcast, This is uh, episode number two of the Chris Thomas King, The Blues, Authentic Narrative podcast. And I'll see you next time. Thank you.